I'm with Ron Kurtz, founder of Hakomi. Hi, Ron. Hello, Serge. So, a lot of people in our audience obviously know Hakomi, and many have been trained in it, but some people may not know it as well. Would you maybe define a little bit what Hakomi is? Well, <clears throat> Hakomi uses uh, several particular or unique approaches to helping people study themselves. We, uh, we believe that, or I believe anyway, that uh, self-study, as it's practiced even in the East, is really about reducing the unnecessary suffering that comes from not knowing who you really are. In fact, Akoma means who are you. And that's, the main, that's what the word means. So, the way we do it is to establish a kind of safe relationship, a, a bubble sometimes we call it, within which the therapist helps the client feel comfortable and safe and uh, cared for. And that's done by training therapists to, to be in the right state of mind when they work. And that's, that state of mind is <clears throat> very similar to what Buddhists might call compassion or uh, we call it loving presence. To have a loving feeling about the person which you actually practice developing and to be totally present. And to be totally present is to be aware of the, the, the facts of the moment. It's to be aware of what's happening. Uh, actions, uh, physical that, that relates us to uh, body-centered psychotherapy. We're constantly aware of the, the bodily signs of the client's present experience. We're interested in accessing the client's implicit beliefs, the beliefs that are operative through, through the client's habits. And uh, we see the signs of those uh, behaviors, we see the signs of even of some of those beliefs in the, in the person's present behavior. We don't, we don't generally uh, think about taking a history, we don't listen, listen very much to what people try to explain to us about themselves. We just use this method to help the person realize who they are. How they how they organize their experience and what about Yeah, so it's really uh, as you you said, uh, who are you, and who are you in the sense of um, how you organize your experience? Yeah, and how you do it unconsciously, automatically. The things that go on, <coughs> as John Lennon would say, while you're doing something. <coughs> There's wonderful new books about uh, the adaptive unconscious, and uh, that, that's, a, that's an essential part of my thinking. That, uh, that most of the processes happen unconsciously, and there's a reason behind that. Yes. There's, a, there's usually a habit that was learned 
as an adaptation to a situation or habits that were learned. And they're not necessarily um, verbalized or even aware. We have to bring them into consciousness and sometimes they'll come in as a memory or an emotional reaction. And then we have to spend a little time getting the, the verbal descriptions of it. You know, a child, a child will learn the grammar of its native tongue by the time it's 18 months old. But you, it cannot tell you about nouns and verbs, but it uses them perfectly. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of adaptations I'm talking about. So we work with the surface indications of those adaptations. I'll give you a very simple example. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there are people who interrupt themselves when they're speaking, uh, as if they had an editor who was watching what they said and would stop them and make them change their words. Well, <clears throat> that's an indicator. That's, that's immediate behavior. It happens with this person almost all the time. And it indicates, it's an indicator of um, either something like... <clears throat> trying to avoid making mistakes because they were punished for being making mistakes. So we can go right to that if I just listen to a person for a minute or two and see that behavior. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so really the uh, what's happening is you're not paying a lot of attention to the, the story of uh, people's lives, but really focusing on uh, how they are and uh, tracking uh, what you call indicators. Indicators, exactly. You know, Reich said that the client's history walks in with him. It's the way he shakes your hand, you know, and holds his body. The adaptations are written in the posture. They're written in the muscle tension. And that the kind of posture where a person uh, looks at you with a slight angle of their head. They don't look directly at you. That's, a, that's an indicator, a postural indicator. So, as in bioenergetics and writing work, locked knees are an indicator of orality, you know, or a puffed-up chest indicator of a, a psychopathic personality. So, all the character patterns, to me, are a subset of indicators, and these indicators are indicators of implicit beliefs. Yeah. Like the, the puffed up chest, I have to be tough, I can't let people in, you know, I can't be honest with you. All those things are written in the posture. So you what, know how to read it. What the, uh, the posture uh, tells you, it's an embodiment of the belief. Mm-hmm. And as you... But the belief doesn't come first. The adaptation comes first. The belief may not even be conscious. It may never have been verbalized. I had that happen in Australia a couple of weeks ago. I get feedback. They're shocked that these beliefs are there, but they recognize it. Yeah. So, so the the this unconscious beliefs as result of the adaptation and unconscious unconscious adaptation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes a special kind of attitude uh, on the part of the therapist to notice yeah. it. And the, ther- and the client. And the client. The clients so, have to be devoted, okay, to this idea of self-study. They have to be willing to allow the, uh, the therapist to do experiments which will evoke 
some of these early painful situations, either they'll come up as an emotion first, where the person just gets emotional and you know why. Uh, and then a, a little while later, they start to have a memory that fits that emotion. Mm-hmm. So, so you, you use it takes the courage to be a client. Takes courage, yes. You use the term experiment. Do you want to talk a little bit about this concept of experiment? Absolutely, yeah. <coughs> um, for example, uh, uh, I was uh, I was giving a talk in, uh, at the psychology conference in Vienna one year, and I had maybe two, three hundred Germans and Austrians there, mostly. I asked them to become mindful. I gave them some uh, time, and I helped them work themselves into mindfulness. And I asked them to say, well, first, first I told them that I'm going to give them a statement while they're in mindfulness. And I told them what the statement would be. I was going to tell them they were a good person. A German that's do this thing, good of that. And I was asking them to tell their neighbors Tell your neighbor what you think your reaction will be when I say that to you and you're in mindfulness. So they talked about that for a moment. Then they got mindful. And then I said it to 200 people. Well, 80% or more had had uh, mispredicted. They didn't know what their reaction would be. About 60% of them got suddenly sad. And some got teary-eyed. And some felt relief. And of course, it's because there's implicit beliefs around in those cultures that we're not good people. So that's an experiment. I, I study the person, I study their indicators, I make a guess about what the beliefs are, and from that guess I create a test, I create an experiment which I hope will evoke uh, a reaction that is uh, carries that is that has significant information for that person about who they are. Mm-hmm. So that's a very, very much um, related to that notion of Hakomi is about who are you. Yes. And by creating the experiment, you give a chance to the person to actually realize the yes. belief they carry inside. Yes. Sometimes we call it self-discovery. Mm-hmm. That's assisted self-discovery. That's the way I like to think of it. Yeah, so that's a very different approach from a more um, medical-oriented model of yeah. pathology. And yeah, it's totally not pathological model. It's the model of, you know, if you want to study yourself, part of it. And um, you mentioned several times the word mindfulness, and, uh, you know, that it's very much part of the way the... Uh, uh, the experiment functions. Could yeah. you talk a little bit more about mindfulness? Yeah, traditionally, mindfulness is the is the method for self-study in you know, meditative practices, Buddhist practices. <clears throat> mindfulness is a state where you are focused and concentrated on the flow of your experience, moment to moment, and without, as much as possible, without interfering with it. For example, it takes years of practice, but some people can watch their breathing without interfering with it. That's the mindfulness. And it's one of the ways they train mindfulness is to just pay attention to your breathing. So 
the idea that is that, that there's no organization around controlling it. You're not you're not controlling what happens in there. So if I say something while you're in that state, it, it directly evokes a reaction. You're not protecting yourself against it. You're allowing these things to happen. And that's one of the reasons that there has to be this connection with the client, where the client understands and feels the compassion of the, of the therapist. Yes. They're, they're taking chances. So in the example you were giving earlier of this talk where you had asked a question to the audience yeah. and um, their inability to, in most cases, to predict how they would feel, yeah. uh, the reason is that they had not been connected to, to themselves and in mindfulness they suddenly had the raw experience. Yes, you could say that. That's true. And the reason I chose that sentence, that statement, you're a good person, is I understand the culture doesn't promote that. The culture promotes original sin, and you're a bad guy. So I just guessed that that would work. In other cultures, I use different ones. Yes, and obviously, as you said, when you're dealing with the client, you pay attention to who the client is through these indicators. Absolutely, and then, then, the, in, then the, the statements I, I offer the client, or, or some other kind of physical experiments I do too, are designed particularly for that client at that moment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in order to reach that uh, moment where the client is able to, uh, to be in a mindful state, uh, you mentioned that the attitude of the therapist includes compassion, the loving presence. Yes. Uh -huh. How is it that you help somebody who is not especially uh, prepared, trained in mindfulness, to become mindful for these experiments? Well... Almost everybody can do it for a moment or two. Uh, almost everybody. You'd have to be quite wired up and nervous not to notice something. And uh, so most people can do it. And of course, clients, once they they uh, have practiced a little bit, it, it gets easier and easier. The key to it is, uh, you might call it limbic resonance. Uh, by my... Uh, or, or any Hakomi practitioner, by timing, by, by pacing, by being silent when the client needs you to be silent, by noticing things, and uh, simply, you know what I train my students to do, I say, when you sit down with somebody, study them for what you like about them, study them for what makes you feel good, and that will be reflected in everything you do. So... Uh, they're trained to do this. So they look at somebody and they'll, they'll, just, they'll just start liking this person, how beautiful they are, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they're, they're all beautiful somehow. Everybody was somebody's baby, you know. <laughs> so, so just uh, uh, what I'm hearing is that if we make mindfulness something that's intimidating, then uh, it's going to be difficult. But if we focus on the fact that most of us can access mindfulness for a few seconds, then it's much easier. And that uh, what happens is that the therapist actually helps the client, eases the client into that mode by limbic resonance, by focusing on uh, uh, what they like about the client. Yeah, that's true. And I may not even mention mindfulness to the client. Mm -hmm. 
I might just say in a very soft voice, something like, well, why don't you just go get as calm as you can get, and I'll say something, and you notice what happens when I say it. It's just as simple as that, and that works. Mm-hmm. You don't have to know about mindfulness. They just have to get calm and study their experience. Yeah. Yeah. So um, very much that sense of just uh, being in the moment and uh, and and creating the the present experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Studying present, studying reactions, you know, studying reactions for the information you see, but for what it tells you about who you are. And that there are people who are too too nervous, they had too much coffee or something like that. And they can't get into mindfulness right away, so they have to do something else. Get a massage, take a hot tub, then come back. Mm-hmm. Something like that. But uh, I've only run into maybe two or three people in a career, a 30-year career, who couldn't do it. Now that's, yeah. that's about that. That's, that's how easy it is. And maybe it's a testament to how wired we are to resonate with other people if the therapists themselves are able to create some of that. Absolutely. You know, sometimes we'll trigger a traumatic memory. And and in times like that, uh, because you have no idea what's going to pop up when you do an experiment, you've got an idea about an indicator, you do an experiment, and the person can go right into some kind of traumatic memory. Mm-hmm. In those cases, I, I have the. I talk very softly and gently and calmly to the person. I have them look right in my eyes. I hold their. I hold them with my vision, you know, and my softness. And I talk to them about, you know, this, you've been hijacked by a memory. You know, you know you're really safe right here, right? You know, it's just appeal to the rational mind. Mm-hmm. And that seems to help them come around quite a bit. Yeah. So very much, instead of talking about relationship, you are in relationship at a very, very basic limbic level. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. And uh, what is it that helps therapists practice be uh, able to, to offer that kind of loving presence? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, for me, <laughs> it popped up Many years ago, when I was working in Germany, and I had done nine straight days of therapy sessions in a group over and over, and I was exhausted, and I was so tired I couldn't think very well. So I just stopped thinking for a while, even though I didn't tell the client, I didn't interrupt the client or anything. They were just talking, and I sort of went blank. And in in this blank state, looking at this person, I saw a certain kind of beauty in this. And, mm-hmm. and I realized if that person knew that I was seeing this, they would they would feel it. And I realized it shows. I'm looking like I'm feeling this. So mm-hmm. I asked the person to look at me. They had their eyes closed. He had his eyes closed. He looked at me, and immediately his process changed into something deeper and something emotional. And that's when I realized... Oh, yeah, that's what, that's, that's the basic engine of the relationship. It's just appreciating this person uh, to the point where you feel compassion or you feel loving towards them. 
that will that will move the process by its hand. And uh, so I this have that. I get plenty of that for myself too. I have a wonderful family. <laughs> it sustains me. Yeah, so in other words, it would be very difficult to offer this kind of sustaining presence to clients if you didn't experience it yourself in your own life. Yeah, you have to find a source for all of that. You have to find the beauty in everything, the sweetness. You have to be really careful about getting hung up mm-hmm. on what's wrong with the world. Just mm-hmm. love. So maybe that's also uh, related to mindfulness in the sense that it's about the ability to to focus or not focus on some things. Yes, right. Sometimes it's sometimes it's called concentration training. Mm-hmm. You can do that too. <coughs> so yeah, there's a, the ability to be focused in the present. Yeah. So um, as you are, as a therapist, uh, has this sense of loving kindness. The client is tracking the client's reactions, discovers indicators, conducts experiments. Uh, what is it like for the client to go through that? You mentioned earlier there is a certain sense of courage. It must take you know, a certain kind of client to take this, or is this something that's applicable to everybody? No, I, no, I think almost everybody. It has to be a willingness for self-study. There has to be a willingness to take an honest look at yourself. The experience for clients, we think of it this way. If they adapted to a situation that is still painful to them in some way, or still running them in some way, defensively, you know, compensating, they didn't get a certain kind of mental, emotional nourishment that they needed. There was something missing. We talk about the missing experience, and when we when we and it's missing because either they don't believe it's possible or they feel they have to defend against it. Like for example, we can do an experiment where I ask the person be mindful to watch me, and I'm going to start moving my hand very slowly towards them as if to touch them, and they should notice their reaction. Well, that will trigger that will trigger a memory of uh, being if, if they have been abused. It's typically going to trigger that. And what's missing for them is is this perfectly gentle, sweet touch that is. And so, when they realize that, that they become emotional, and then they then they can allow the hand to touch them, and they can feel the sweetness. They can feel it. What's been missing for years and years. And that missing experience is so delicious mm-hmm. and so healing that one time, the one once you experience that, or even if you just see that happening with somebody else, like when I do therapy intensives, very often, and maybe there's 20, 25 people out there watching me, five of them are going to be crying and in somebody's arms when I'm done. Mm-hmm. The people watching get moved because they have similar issues. The issues are very general. The nourishment that was missing is just like in Germany, you know. 
So maybe that's something I would want to uh, to make explicit is that uh, we're talking about something like experiment and uh, using an analogy with a scientific process, mm-hmm. but uh, the end of it, the uh, you know the moment of change, uh, the moment of healing is the emotional healing that happens uh, when people connect to that missing experience. Exactly. So, uh, this emotional healing, could you, you know, you just described something that happened in a workshop. Could you give some experiences, another, you know, one recent example of an experiment and the uh, kind of uh, missing experience that it revealed? You know, very often I'll, I'll tell somebody, well, there's a little bit of technique involved here to evoke these memories and to evoke the emotions and events. <coughs> but um, I remember working with somebody, a psychiatrist. No, I think she's a doctor, just a medical doctor. Mm-hmm. We've been severely abused and... Uh, we worked several sessions until she reached a point where she was containing her rage and couldn't release it. Mm-hmm. it just choke her up in her throat. Okay, so I said, well, you come back tomorrow and I'll have three people here, beautiful people here to assist me and we'll contain you. So we did that. She came back. We brought her right to the same edge and they were holding her very tightly because mm-hmm. she was she would contain herself if she was alone. But when 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 she reaches the point the second day, I have people hold her very tightly so she can feel safe enough mm-hmm. to express herself. Well, she goes into this rage, and it and it I don't know how long it lasts, but I have a tape of it. It probably lasted at least five or ten minutes. No more than ten, but at least five. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, okay, after this ex- explosion, she lay down with her head on one of my assistant's laps, and she, you know, she was feeling really great. She released that, and there was kind of a, a, a sweet melancholy about it all. And, mm-hmm. and she looked at me and she said, "I never did this before. Mm-hmm. She never let herself." Be comforted before. Never rested her head in somebody's lap before. That's 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 delicious. Mm-hmm. So. One of the I things. That's a question, but that was the answer. That, yes. <laughs> Just uh, uh, as I, I was asking you to, uh, to to relate an example of that, and what's become very apparent in this example is the role of containment and support, including physical support. Yeah, exactly. That's still, that's still part of the, the body-centered aspect of it. So um, where other people see things in terms of resistance, you actually um, I have support people. I, yeah, I see it as emotional management behavior, mm-hmm. experiential management behavior. So I'm going to help them manage it. I'm not going to support their, their behavior. And 
so, so that they can relax a little bit. Let me help them. And then what they're managing has a better chance of coming through as expression. So in other words, you don't go into a battle with the clients into describing a behavior as dysfunctional, but you see it as the way they are managing their behavior. Yes. And as you help them, something else happens. Absolutely. Much, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Um, that we call that technique taking over. Mm-hmm. We take over a person's defenses or his management behavior. Like, for example, if I give somebody a probe that says you're a good person, and they hear a voice that says, no, I'm not. I mean, they have a thought, right? No, mm-hmm. We'll have somebody take that over because that's a management behavior. Yeah. They're managing uh, their fear of ex- thinking of themselves as a good person. Now, that's not a good idea. So I have somebody take that over. So I say it again a few times. You're a good person. And this assist- assistant of mine says, no, I'm not. And the person is again in mindfulness. And as we do this two or three times very often, there's a memory. Okay, memory comes up about where they learn this adaptation. And once you got it in memory, it's, it's changeable. Once they see why they did it, they, they have some more control. They can change it. They can change their behavior. But they have to understand it first. Mm-hmm. You can't force it to change. It changes through insight. Yeah. And practice. So the words insight and practice are very um, evocative also of Buddhist practice. Absolutely, yeah, that's right. And uh, that I assume that is an area where some of that uh, wisdom, some of that approach has permeated into your approach and your methods. It was there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was enamored and... Uh, studied Buddhism and Taoism long before I started doing the COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's part of the inspiration for the method. So I would like to, uh, to use the word inspiration to say that uh, this has been an inspiration. Unfortunately, we have to, uh, we're coming to the end of the interview. But maybe I would like to suggest to uh, people who are hearing this to carry with them some of this uh, compassionate and experimental attitude in, uh, in their work. Yeah. Try loving presence. Loving presence. Thank you, Ron, for your loving presence. It's a pleasure. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.